it's the needle and the mouse. Where were you when the debut issue of Abercrombie and Fitch Quarterly came out in the fall of 1997? High school? Somewhere. <laughs> I definitely knew about it. I think I did have a couple. But I was not... 1997, what grade were we in? 10th grade? Nine. Fall of, uh, yeah, of 97, 10th grade. 10th grade. I was not into Abercrombie in 10th grade. I was into Abercrombie... Oh, there was a year I was into Abercrombie, but I think it was more 8th grade. Yeah, same. Or, or, or ninth grade when I was like into patchwork hippie shit, but also Abercrombie. I think they must have had something before then because I was just looking in, on eBay and you can buy an old Abercrombie quarterly magazine for $40 to $500, depending on who's <laughs> trying to sell it to you. But I think they must have had something before that because I remember something from definitely ninth grade, which would have been 96, 97, even like clipping pages out and hanging them on stuff. But I don't know. I rejected Abercrombie when it became a thing where people were wearing the (laughs) – speaking of logos from last week, like the logo shirts and stuff. When like the kids at my school, like the basic kids – started getting into Abercrombie, then I rejected it. But I liked it when it was like a little more sophisticated and a little bit more grown up. And right. then when there they was... went really teenager, I was not into it. Same. There was this period where it seemed like from in like the mid-90s, I don't know the full history of it, and perhaps Oh, someday. I do. Okay, well, you can tell me. But it seemed like there was a uh, a switch that flipped from like outdoorsy basics work almost workwear inspired like i was buying like um plaid shirts from them well my mom was probably buying them from like uh secondhand stores for me but i was buying i aspired to have the the look and then it flipped to like really really suburban kids who went who wore like surfer clothes and that yeah. never 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 well you me. know who owned abercrombie who's l brands Oh, right. Les Wexner. I'm writing yeah. a book about Victoria's Secret, so I know a bit about this. Also, our baby is here. Fritz is here. So he's he hanging out. He did not want the... to take a nap, so he is. he's chilling with us. He's going to be making a lot of bubble noises and chit-chatting. Hopefully, he'll fall asleep in my arms, but unlikely. Um, but, yeah, it. they bought it in, I think, 88. Hmm. And they hired this guy, or already existed at the company, this guy, Mike Jeffries, who, like, transformed it and before that it was an outdoors brand and then they kind of kept it like that and more collegiate i'd say they were probably in the beginning trying to compete more with j crew even though j crew wasn't a big big thing back then but like that that kind of person and then they i think they went public in 96 and i want to say that's when they really went hard on the teens um, because they were starting to get interest. I have a dress from Abercrombie that I wear occasionally that I Excellent. got in ninth grade that is just like a plaid dress. I don't I don't wear it anymore, but I wore it up until like five years ago. Hmm. Um, that was more that traditional preppy. Um, but yeah. Well, anyway, the reason we're I even di- talking I about digress. this is that um, in the late 90s and then after that, Abercrombie published... What for a while was actually like a very good, or at least seemed to my teenage self, like a very good magazine, Abercrombie and Fitch Quarterly, which, especially when it launched, and I I feel like there was, I I don't know, I was looking up the history on Wikipedia, and basically it feels like there's a missing part from before that, which is when I was paying more attention to them, Um, but (laughs) Fritz is definitely hanging out in the studio today. Yeah. So all sound effects are courtesy of a four-and-a-half-month-old yes, four future podcaster. It's very cool. Good um, thing we I guess current podcaster. Of, good thing we don't have a lot of um, readers or, or viewers Listeners. or what have you. Thank you to our friends and family listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Question is, does he get royalties for this from uh, mm. some sort of recording union? I don't know. I don't know. Um, we'll find out, I guess, in 18 years. Um Anyway, the reason we're talking about any of this is today is the content and commerce uh, episode of the show, at least one of probably many in the future. We um, we It's a topic that we talk about a lot in our household um, because of our professional interests. And a few things have happened in the last week 
one of which is that I wrote uh, part of my newsletter last week about the deal that just happened, um, Chase, the bank. Obviously, you've heard of Chase, uh, which owns the Sapphire credit card line and obviously is the biggest consumer bank in the U.S., uh, recently announced plans to acquire the Infatuation, which is a food and restaurant digital publisher uh, based in New York and had been kind of one of the more interesting independent online food publishers over the last decade for sure. Um, In some ways rival to Eater, which were my former colleagues at Vox Media, but kind of a different different attitude, different point of view. They were seemed like more consumer focused, less industry focused. Um, they had a kind of a viral hashtag in the early days of Instagram, which was eats. That um, was them. Yeah. That's funny. Maybe the first viral hashtag. Uh, maybe not, probably not, but I wrote about it this week and we can get into some of the specifics in a bit. But the other thing that's happened is we've Kind of just uh, coincidentally also picked up a pile of um, really good brand published content. I mean, a lot of it seems to be published by publishing companies. For example, this Uniqlo Lifewear magazine that I'm now holding, which is the uh, issue 5 2021 fall winter neighborhood living. Uh, I, I think this is produced by... Monocle, Wink Creative, is oh, that cool. right? Didn't we get it I at the Monocle it was store? The Popeye people, but didn't we pick it, probably, it up? Probably. Oh, it pro- yeah, we did get it at the Monocle store. It probably is um, Wink Creative. I mean, this is this is a business model for a lot of these smaller magazines. Yeah, Fritz, Fritz is really into it, where they will create a magazine for a brand, and yeah. it like costs. The gentlewoman woman used to do costs. I don't oh, know cool. if they still do it. I think Fantastic Man also used to do some magazines for people, um, which is the same company, Fantastic Man and the Gentlewoman. It's like a, a thing that, yes, a lot of indie magazines do. I'm sure they get paid very, very well, and it probably funds a lot of the actual magazine. And it's it's smart because the indie magazines are so creative. The interesting thing is sometimes these things are kind of boring and they're just dumb interviews or whatever. But recently they've been really good. Like the Lifewear one, it was good. And Lifewear is such a weird concept anyway. I think Uniqlo has not get, got, done a good job at all at communicating what Lifewear is, <laughs> which is just I basically mean, clothes you live in, which is right. someone else's, I think it's entire world's slogan. It's just like a basic brand slogan um i think it makes might make more sense in the context of japan where lifewear is not a not words that people use every day like it's almost like a graphic i mean it just it literally describes what clothes are and i think their point is like these are the clothes you'll actually live in as opposed to yeah 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 it just the way they tried to when they launched it i went to the launch I think it was the U.S. launch of it. And the way they tried to describe what it was, I was like, uh, this is not for a a Western audience. Yeah. By the way, I'm looking at the back credits here. There's no mention of Wink Creative. So maybe they at one point worked together on it. And I remember I some sort of Popeye. insert. I mean, right now it basically says, it basically Uniqlo is taking all creative and art direction published by Uniqlo. Well, they probably just hired them in, but, yeah. to be the editors. Perhaps they were consultants on it. There's the definitely a UK publication or creative people working on this because it's all... There is there is also an Austin feature, but there's a big feature on people who live at the Barbican in London. That that amazing building that if we the lived in micro London, we'd want to live in. It's re- it feels like you are opening an issue of Popeye or you know another one of those Japanese men's magazines, but really Popeye. Um, but like all the clothes are Uniqlo and the shoots are styled, but are it's it's funny they don't feel like ad shoots. Like it doesn't feel like a catalog, and it's not a no. catalog. 
Um, you know, I think of like I've been getting the Todd Snyder catalog in the mail, and that has some editorial features in it, but it's very much a catalog. Like this literally feels like a magazine that just happens to feature all or mostly Uniqlo clothing. And, you know, the editorial is like not incredibly profound, but it's interesting. Like I was reading Fritz, the um, Barbican feature. He enjoyed it. We had a good time. And, um, it just, you know, it's the kind of thing that I would actually pick up and read every time there was a new one. And, and I got to see a bunch of the new Uniqlo clothes, which, you know, I don't know what, would I have, would I have seen them? Perhaps I would have gone to the website and looked through them or, or the store, but certainly would not have seen them styled like they were in, you know, a cool shop in the Barbican or somewhere in Austin or something like that. Yeah. The Uniqlo U stuff, they always have a really great shoot and that the same thing, you know, their collaborations are really good. And so you see that stuff flat and you know, it's going to be interesting, but it was really nice to see the kind of quote unquote regular Uniqlo stuff styled on cool people or interesting people. If you don't think they're cool, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. Like I wanted to read through it and I also wanted to see how people wore some of the stuff that like I buy stuff from the Uniqlo U collection every season because it's affordable and which is a collaboration with with Christophe Lemaire and he also who is I'd say like the primary designer of my wardrobe yeah we talked about the other week like I'll buy one thing from his main collection each season and then I'll buy like a bunch of Uniqlo U stuff and he also consult on the main line so you can see stuff that works in his collection it like is a little bit dumbed down for the main line a couple of years later like similar silhouettes and things and that's really cool um i mean this like this and so speaking of uniqlo's collaborations which continue to be kind of their more interesting and fashion forward products like they they have in this in this issue. They talk to Jonathan Anderson, who has another one of their global collaborations, and he's based in London, and that's where they talk about London. They also have one coming out in November with White Mountaineering, and so they're able to use this magazine to also talk about White Mountaineering, and you know, basically take us to the the uh, outdoorsy Japanese feeling um, that. And and some of the pieces I was just looking at them actually look pretty cool. So it's an interesting way to, you know, the vast majority of Uniqlo shoppers probably, A, don't know this magazine exists, and B, wouldn't wouldn't care or wouldn't get much value out of it. But I think the people who do, I think there's probably a strong overlap in the people who, A, shop those collaborations and are interested in that sort of stuff, and B, would want to read more about it and this is a good convenient way to do all of that yeah and to be honest like yes would i like a magazine like courier or monocle that is gonna do some sort of guide to the barbican the people who live in the barbican or hang out around the barbican or whatever sure like but might be more editorially rigorous or something like that yeah but. but to be honest there just aren't that many magazines that are editorial rig- editorially rigorous. Like most of them feel like they need to have a certain amount, including Monocle. They certainly put a lot of advertisers in their fashion shoots and things like that, that you can tell they were really stretching to get this weird brand into a fashion shoot. And in a weird way, this feels a little more like clear cut. And it's, it's not about, they don't need to do, they don't need to like wedge some ugly thing in there because it's just all Uniqlo clothes. It's almost more honest. It's not yeah. like, hey, we're going to slide these advertisers into the shoot here. It's like, yeah, this is a, a Uniqlo magazine. Everything in here is and, Uniqlo. And we're going to, we're still going to try to tell interesting stories around yeah, it. Yeah. And what they've done really well is the clothes are really second to the, to the, content i'd say there is there is an article in here about something about how they design something i definitely did not read that yeah see half of this is in japanese so i think that they have a japanese friend helping out with this but the (laughs) thing that they did really interestingly is their their down puffer 
they showed the 2009 edition and the 2021 edition hmm. and like through the years of how it's changed and i kind of liked that i was like oh maybe i'll get one of these like a thin jacket when we're in new york if it's too warm they also have um herzog and i don't know how to pronounce that Dameron. um i'd have to see it they're the architects yeah text by kosuke ide it I feels like this a is a production situation. from from Japan. Um, Japan HQ, Lifewear HQ. The famous architects they have, um, they have like an art article with them, and the one guy is definitely wearing Uniqlo. The other guy, un- unclear. Um, <laughs> but it's just it's very good. Like yeah. I really, the Austin article was interesting. I just love a lot of the styling. They have this like neighborhood living article and i think that's all the austin people maybe um it's just oh these actually look good when you put them on because sometimes in their story like the models on the fit models and also just the flat lying stuff it just you can't tell if stuff is good or it's gonna fit well and and it's nice to see it on real people um, I really enjoyed this one, but we've had a bunch kind of come into our lives recently, and I think that this might be a golden era for this stuff because magazine print magazines are pretty much failing, so creative people are leaving to go to brands. We've we've written about this, we've talked about this a million times, and also very few very few companies have been able to create great content themselves like i'd say randomly tori birch has a really good editorial product that people really enjoy that's only online i feel like almost this stuff really works mostly in print or best in print for some reason um and the the other one the the one that kind of sparked this was this i'm picking it up it's very heavy this interview magazine book that they did for Carolina Herrera. And it's essentially, you know, Carolina Herrera is celebrating 40 years, whatever. It's some advertising thing. But it's essentially a book of, it, it's, a, it's an interview magazine. They do a bunch of different interviews. They did a bunch of shoots. But it's all with Carolina Herrera clothing. And, you know, she was, she was a, a subject of Warhol. I'm sure she was on the cover of interview at some point, I would assume. But they they like did a whole feature, a shoot with a um model from RuPaul's Drag Race, like very modern and the the, the guy who runs Interview Mel Ottenberg is like very cool and an incredible stylist and Interview Magazine is really good right now. And so I have no idea what in what Carolina Herrera spent on this. I'm sure it was a really good amount for interview. It might not have been, it might have been a drop in the bucket of their marketing for Carolina Herrera. It depends on which budget it was coming from. You know, there's that brand has a big perfume business and a big secondary line business outside of the U.S. Their main line is probably a smaller business, but did they get to use perfume money to to make this? I have no idea. We sh- we definitely will will be finding out when we go to New York and talking to people who worked on it. But it's great. Like, did I read all the articles? No. Are some is some of it feel a little bit like an advertisement? Sure, but it is. I will keep this. Like, it's yeah. a very cool relic of when she says book. It is a book. Like, it's a hardcover book. Beautiful, beautiful printing like yeah, great the, photography it looks amazing the guy who designs carolina herrera west gordon who i've known for a long time and interviewed him many times he was interviewed by uh, sandra bernhardt so it's like funny and interesting it wasn't just you know him interviewing carolina herrera or, yeah. or what have you that's um, cool yeah it's really good i'm very impressed by it and I'm just happy people are doing stuff like this. Like if I was a marketing person, I would blow my load on something like this instead of why do you want to be on in all these dumb magazines that no one reads? <laughs> Literally no one reads. Even when I buy them, I don't read them. Cuz I'm like, "Oh, I need to read blank 
mass mass fashion magazine just to see what's in there and then i look through it for a minute and i'm like this is so boring and feels like it's pandering to advertisers and just the lowest common denominator like the the especially the mainstream magazines i've recently you know once i one i resubscribe to but even just every time i look through them i'm like who are you even trying to talk to anymore is this is just some and i guess some of them have kind of realized that and have retuned to a probably a more like enthusiast audience and that sort of stuff. You start to see that with, with like GQ, GQ where they're, yeah. they're not like, I think they're, I think they've recalculated and, and are, I think it's not for me still, but no, it feels like it's less trying to talk to everyone now. Cause that's just, you can't do that anymore. I agree. I think GQ out of all the kind of mainstream Conde and Hearst publications has done the best job of that for its agrees. Um, it's just like a fun magazine for young guys who think they're interested in fashion or are interested or celebrity or whatever. And I think the art direction is really good. Um, I think Bone App in its old iteration pre, you know, before it, it transformed, I think Bone App for many years was that unfortunately they didn't evolve with the times in terms of representation and, and understanding like how to credit people for their recipes and things like that. So now they have evolved and they're, they're transforming to something different. I don't think it's good yet, but it might be, it's gotten a lot better. Um, but there are very few mass magazines that are able to be fun and interesting. And I think GQ has done a decent job and they would be, do a really good job at one of these things. I mean, they probably don't have time to do that because they publish, I don't know, six or eight or 10, issues a year but and most of these magazines that so like the gentlewoman two times a year interview i bet is six i truly have no idea though um the other one that i pulled out i just pulled a bunch of them out because i actually end up saving a lot of these more than weirdly right recent print magazines yeah i saved gentlewoman but that's basically it um I bought this random one that was from a system magazine from my probably oh, 2017 that is a Calvin Klein print and advertising spring 2017 case study. Whoa. And so this woman, Joanne Furness, who's a pretty famous fashion writer, um, she does a lot of show notes. She used to write for style.com and she does a lot of show notes for designers. So like when you go to the show and they have these ridiculous notes that make no sense, she writes a lot of those. Um, she wrote this and it's basically looking at this cal that first Ralph Simmons, Calvin Klein advertising campaign and dissecting it, whatever. I was a really big fan of the Ralph Simmons era at Calvin Klein. I think it didn't work commercially because the clothes didn't fit people and they, you know, a lot of other reasons. But I think when we look back and, you know, 20 years from now, when design students are in school looking for inspiration, they're going to be looking at those collections and the imagery, which was a little weird and cold for Calvin, but I think super memorable. So I'm not the biggest system magazine reader. It's a little dense and not what I'm looking for. I mean, I don't really from pleasure want to read about what I write, write about often, but I bought this randomly, which was, I'm sure free if you bought system magazine, but I bought it at this bookstore in Highland park that has since closed. And it was way too expensive also, but it's super interesting. It just feels like a cool relic and it's cool that they did it as a case study or whatever. I don't know what that actually means for them. Um, and then I also brought these, these are not, um, these are not, I don't know how to explain. Like I brought this Marina Serra one. That's this kind of book of story of the, it's essentially a brand book and they passed them out. They sent them out during the pandemic and it's basically like, it has words and a little words and text, but basically imagery of how she built the brand. And it says core is a love letter to everyone that makes our story possible. Our realities, our families, our lives, whatever. Yeah, who cares about that? But it's really cool. And, and that she is, you know, an important, interesting designer from this era who I love following 
and am, am fascinated by. And so I've kept this. I think I probably will. I don't keep a lot of stuff. I've kept very few. I think I've kept like two or three invitations my whole career. But I love that because it's real. And I wonder if like if she had a store, if you'd be able to just take that. And then the other one I got yesterday was a Dries Van Noten lookbook for the the fall collection. And he did a video with a dance and choreo. Uh, choreography, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just a really beautifully done book. And he is one of the few whose um, invitations I have kept a couple just because they're so beautiful. And, and he sent out postcards last season. I just love this stuff. It just feels, I don't want a dumb lookbook. I don't want, you know, I don't want a cheesy insert inside a magazine for a brand, but I want something that people, when people take care, it marketing can be engaging and exciting too. And I think, um, you know, everybody, we talk about content and com commerce constantly and mostly it's been digital, but I think when it really works, it, the physical can be, I don't want to say powerful, but fun and, and pleasurable. Totally. I mean, I'm actually looking across the room at one more we have, which is the, uh, and this one was done by Wing Creative, which is the Monocle Creative Agency, but the St. Moritz Magazine, which was basically oh, yeah. like a, an issue of Monocle that's all about the town of St. Moritz in Switzerland, uh, which is kind of like a ski, you know, winter ski resort town, um, very ritzy. We went there for one night in the summer, two summers ago, off season, off piste. Um, yes, Fritz is being handed over now and, and it's an, you know, it's, it's also just a, it's really good and it doesn't feel like you're reading an advertisement. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned like engagement, what's the point of all this stuff? Well, if you think about our attention spans these days, you know, forget even a 30 second TV commercial, but then think about how much time and, and how long do you spend looking at a magazine ad, like half of a second or something like that? Um, even if it's an interesting piece of photography or editorial, like maybe five seconds or something like that, think about this Lifewear magazine, which collectively we've probably spent like over an hour reading, yeah. um, or Sam Ritz magazine, which we definitely have each spent an hour reading, you know, whether it's on a plane or on a toilet or on a train or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Like we're getting a really, really deep level of engagement with directly with a brand. In this case, the brand is a city. And it's probably funded by some sort of tourism budget or something like that. And there are ads within the magazine and all that. So they can make more money in uh, that way. But it's just a level of depth of engagement that you're not going to get from a straight paid media placement or something like that. No. And, and honestly, like when I think about what do I want to read when Fritz goes to bed? And we have an hour or whatever, because I go to bed very early also. Um, yeah, Fritz, what do I want to read? Um, I either want to read the New Yorker or New York Magazine, which have really, really well-edited articles that inspire me to do better at my own work. Or I want to read something that is not going to st stress me out or offend me or annoy me. And... I either want something to like the the magazines that I buy now are tend to be more I just want something that's like brain numbing or really engaging and and high quality and the stuff in the middle just isn't there anymore. Right. Hey cutie, like um, I don't need to read any celebrity article ever and if I do I can read it online, you know. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so zooming out, like we talked about a little bit about some of our favorite examples in, especially in print, I would say in digital, there's some really good ones too. Um, I think Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm I've probably talked about on the show before, but has a really, really great podcast network. Like they, and they've also recently started publishing a digital news website portal, whatever you want to call it called, I think it's just called future or something like that. Um, but their podcasts like are extraordinarily in-depth and informative explanations or discussions about current topics or future topics in tech, in business, in crypto and healthcare. And 
it's interesting. Like they, because they're not, I don't know the why. I think, I think because, because they're not, I don't know if it's the business model necessarily, or if it's just their point of view, but they have, maybe because they're not trying to fit into some other model, they're not trying to be TechCrunch. Um, they're able to speak and think at a level of depth and kind of a, a focus, uh, like a future forward focus that most what we would call like quote unquote editorial or news publications just don't do. And there is a, there is a drawback to that, which is there is a lack of criticism. I would say like there's, there's not a journalistic level of criticism for a lot of the stuff like do they do. A lot of it is straight up just talking their book um, and is highly biased and there's no, you know, there's, there's little attempt to, to tell both sides. But I think if we've learned anything from media over the last decade is that both sides is, is bullshit in a lot of cases. Like you, you're a lot of times you're better off not learning quote unquote the other side because it's a, it's total idiot, idiotic crap. So um, that's not to say that the listener or the reader shouldn't be critical. You should be critical of everything that everyone says, including everything we're saying. Tell, tell us we're full of shit, please. But, you know, in the case of something like Andreessen Horowitz, they're able to, again, yes, talk their book, but at a level of depth and and nerdiness, for lack of a better word, that is very educational. Like when I, a couple of years ago, was trying to understand the basics of, of crypto and and blockchain, like I learned more from the Andreessen Horowitz podcast than any other single source of, of content. And I didn't go looking for deep dives on in text because I found podcasts actually to be because people had to explain it verbally in a way that would make sense to the host and the listener. I actually found it to be much more easy to understand and easy to learn. Um, even though, you know, I listened to several hours of, of podcasting than if I were to read a 30 page article or something like that. Yeah, I would say that a big thing is that honesty and trans- – I hate this word because it's used in marketing law, but transparency. Like if you are honest with yourself about what you're doing, like the thing that's the worst, and I think people have come to us asking for recommendations to – we want to hire an editorial person. Who do you suggest? And we want to do – we want to have this – years ago, more even more so, it was like we want to have a blog and we want to be like in the conversation. And it's like – but you're a brand like that. Is that really what you're good for, you know? Yeah. And, and I think like figure out what you're good for. And I think with these examples that we've shown, we've shown that I, – I encourage people to check this stuff out. Like the Dries Van Noten thing, I think that's just been sent to editors – but it's beautiful and, and inspiring. And yes, I write about Dries Van Noten and the company, but also I like Dries Van Noten's clothes and it was beautiful to look at. But the Carolina Herrera thing is just super smart. And the I'd say the Uniqlo thing, which you can get at Uniqlo, I believe, is probably the best of all of them. So b- back to the question of like, what's the point of all this? I think, and this is kind of the gist of my my essay Last week in The New Consumer, which you can read if you're a member, um, and it's the same issue. The title is called What Momentum Looks Like, talking about um, the latest from Fishwife, the tinned fish company. But I think there's a, you know, there's there's kind of like a, a no shit obvious thing, which is that people think that good brand content will drive sales, like that you can, whether it's efficiency or just like building an, an affinity to your audience, like you'll, you'll be more successful getting people to buy stuff by publishing good content. And perhaps that's, perhaps there is some truth to that. Like, you know, the obviously case studies are like things like food 52 and Hodinkee where they started as, you know, quote unquote, pure play editorial um, with some advertising businesses and sponsorships. And then later grew to build really interesting and, um, you know, substantial businesses selling products, both other people's products and then their own products and collaborations and that sort of stuff. And they were able to use that audience, that community that they built up in the early days as, a, as an editorial brand. Um, and I would say also like the authority and trust. I think trust is a big part of it um, that an editorial brand can build that 
a brand would have a harder time just building up like this this editorial trust because brands kind of exist to to service the brand and not the the audience so much. I guess obviously they make products that people are going to get value from and and hopefully really enjoy using, but they're still ultimately brands and and perhaps profit driven. Um, so this this idea that an editorial focus and lens can add some sort of trust and credibility that a brand itself just would not be able to to get on its own. So there's definitely some of that. Like I, you know, you definitely see brands starting editorial publications for just like straight up SEO. Like so, people search for terms like whatever it is. Like uh, in this case, there's a, there's a crying baby. So maybe you're searching baby formula, and maybe you land on the SEO'd out blog that the formula company has set up or something like that. Like there's definitely a, a functional purpose for that. Um, you know, and, and so you see pretty much every smart brand now has some sort of editorial thing and some of them start and stop them. Um, some of them are more successful than others. Some of them serve a, a better purpose than others, but thinking specifically to this acquisition of, of the infatuation by chase, some of it, and, and you look at, some other moves in that in that sector, for example, um, American Express two years ago bought Resi, which has an editorial site. Like they do some articles that are actually pretty good, but primarily Resi is a is a booking engine. I don't and, I don't like the Resi stuff because it feels like they're pushing um, mostly pushing restaurants that need people to go to them. <laughs> Not always, mm. but it feels like a general. I don't like it. It the feels articles? too promo to me. Yeah. All right. Well, it, anyway, it makes me out. Even all, like all time, which does not have an issue. Even the article they did on them, I was like, "This is gross. I don't like it." Sorry. Okay, good to know. Um, anyway, so there's this. So the the premium credit card companies want people who are high spenders. High spenders, especially younger ones, are interested or are thought to be interested in travel and dining. So if you look at the premium credit cards like the chase sapphire reserve and the mx platinum and the mx gold like they've 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 made it so that dining and travel are categories where they're really pushing um their audience to to spend at they get uh increased rewards for it and they built out these programs increasingly now in competition and in lockstep where you get access and you get um uh, some sort of exclusivity that you wouldn't been able to get before. So this this past summer, Amex launched this thing with, you know, they've now integrated Resi into to American Express in some ways. And so if you're an Amex Platinum or Black Card holder, you get into this program. I think it's called like Amex Preferred Dining or something like that. I, I, have, I don't have the name in front of me. But it, what it basically lets you do is get... A exclusive seats supposedly that are that are at a, a handful of really nice restaurants, and then B, um, perhaps the best feature of Resi is this is this alerting system where basically when a when a, uh, a a table opens up in the Resi system, you get a push notification that says, "Quick, there's a table available. Jump in and book it." Um, for years, when we lived in New York, it was kind of my favorite iPhone game. You would, you'd, on a Friday afternoon, you'd set up Resi notify alerts for like five restaurants, and you know if you could be the first one to grab it uh, as it came in, it was it was a great success. And um, anyway, so now if you have a, a fancy MX card, you can a- allegedly like skip the line almost and be one of the first people to get those alerts. So that was an interesting product that Resi and MX built out. So now you have Chase, which has the Sapphire cards and Chase thinking like, okay, how do we compete with that? We need to provide, by the way, also Amex does these things like they have private dinners for their highest spenders that are, you know, with chefs like Rene Rizepi from Noma where they come in and cook. There's this whole exclusive exclusivity of, of access to the cooking world, to the restaurant and dining world that the top, top Amex spenders and, and like valued card members have have received for years now so here's chase going how do we compete with that we want to offer you know great uh access to the most sought after restaurants to our card members um yes they were they've been able to kind of achieve some of that with biz dev relationships like they have been working closely with talk which works with a lot of the highest end restaurants um you can like get there's like, you know, you can get a deal basically, or you can get access to certain things on talk and certain, I just got another 
Chase email this week where it's like, we, we now we have exclusive seatings at these other restaurants. Um, so there definitely is some like uh, tit for tat going on here between Amex and Chase. But the interesting thing going back to where we started is by buying the infatuation, Chase is getting a lot of content that, yes, may may be a venue to you know, put chase ads, fine, whatever. Um, yeah, maybe you'll get the chase Sapphire. If you land on a, on an infatuation article, maybe you won't, but I think more importantly, they are getting access to the relationships that the editorial team at the infatuation has built up. And, and maybe not just the editorial team, but like the business team too, like the network and the deep relationships within the dining industry that, some mid-level marketing manager at Chase, like maybe they have like a couple of those, but they certainly don't have the depth and the breadth that an editorial brand would. And by the way, that's super fragile. Like you can screw that up immediately. And this is where we're really going to have to see, like, is Chase going to be a good owner of an editorial property? Are they going to understand the lines that they can't cross? Maybe, maybe not. Like they may be terrible and they, and they could easily ruin a lot of those relationships if they try to turn them too commercial too quickly. But uh, but, but that, I think that's a big part of it. And, and that's where the, you know, yes, they'll be able to provide the infatuations content more closely. Maybe they'll integrate it in some sort of app or some sort of service they have. They also own Zagat, which is, I guess, useful perhaps in New York to, to some people. Um, I, I don't know. I've never consulted it in my life, but, uh, it I exists. Also, I also think, um, for something, cause I would assume the infatuation is pretty big, probably has pretty good traffic. I think so. Um, yeah. For a food site in particular, the data. I think one thing, this data isn't going to change their lives, but there is something about you hear all about a lot of brands using the data, editorial data, to create a product. And I do think that that data, like seeing what people click on, is helpful. Yeah, I mean, and it's thing, different than the they have credit card receipts. So, like, right. Chase knows where everyone is going yeah. to eat. But to see where people's interests are is an interesting like layer of data, and that's the thing that you know. One thing that we both are very interested in is Mel Magazine and what happened there. Have we talked about that on here before? No, and that was the last thing I was going to bring up, which is and and you to your point, yes, like the. Chase already knows where everyone's eating. What the infatuation knows is where's the restaurant industry going? Where are people going to want to eat? And how can Chase get in the ground floor and build those relationships and those those products ahead of the consumer? Um, But you brought up a really great point. We we talked about Mel Magazine a few months ago, Lauren and I did privately because, um, and for those who don't know, Mel Magazine was started by Dollar Shave Club, um, the shaving company, as a very provocative, quote-unquote, men's magazine. It's all digital. Um, you know, they talk very openly about sexuality, about masculinity, about, um, you know, gender, about topics in a very, I would say, like, uh, open and provocative way that maybe if I wouldn't say offensive to advertisers but maybe uh would generate a, a like a tenderness or, or or something like it's the kind of stuff that like a lot of brands are still a little uncomfortable about including just like some profanity or like you know body parts that um a lot of brands probably would shy away from mel magazine did not shy away from anything it was great it was really fun to read whenever i would come across something from them and they hired good young writers like it was it was a really well done thing and um, Dollar Shave Club famously bought by Unilever, which is like one of those giant CPG conglomerates for a, what was it, a billion dollars, um, I think in 2016. Mel Magazine kind of quietly operated in the background, um, you know, probably probably cost a couple million bucks a year to make, not like $100 million, but not $50. Um, but and then the founder, Michael Dubin, who was the founder and CEO of Dollar Shave Club, left Unilever, I believe, earlier this year. There's a new CEO. And then all of a sudden there's an article that's basically like Mel, Mel Magazine uh, can be yours for, for a low, low price if you want to buy it. I guess Dollar Shave Club decided we are no longer going to be publishing this magazine. Um, they could have just straight up just shut it down and, and, and killed it. They were, I guess, kind enough to... Um, allow the founder, you know, the co-founder who is the editor in chief to 
uh, or I don't know if he was the editor in chief or not, but he was the the founder of the magazine or the website um, to try to find another uh, holding company to to own it and operate it. So they ended up did find they ended up finding a, a, a company that that took it on. Uh, I don't have the name in front of me, but you know. So anyway, so our conversation was like, well, why why should Unilever, which owns Dollar Shave Club, but like just a shit ton of big drugstore brands in all categories from food to wellness to uh, like soaps. Like half the stuff in your bathroom is made by Unilever. Just look at the label and you'll be like, oh, okay, cool. That's Unilever. Um, The other half is Procter & Gamble. Why should Unilever own Mel Magazine? And, you know, we were talking about this. It's not about house ads. It's not about using Mel Magazine to sell, I don't know, whatever it is, uh, Head and Shoulders. Maybe that's a Unilever brand or maybe it's not. But it's more than that. Um, it's not even only about like access to cool content. Like, yeah, there, there, there are certainly interesting partnerships that Unilever brands could have done with Mel Magazine. Certainly even Dollar Shave Club. And it doesn't even sound like there was much of a commercial push-pull there. Um, but Lauren argued to me like, it's almost like the the best market research tool you can have. Like it's the closest, it's the closest that a, a CPG conglomerate could have to like the real culture. Um, what do you mean by that? How do, how do you think through that? I just think like all of those types of companies, they aren't actually making culture. And if you can make culture, which I don't, the phrase making culture is a little weird. But it's a, a phrase that Robbie Myers, who used to be the editor-in-chief of Elle, used to use. And I never worked for her, but I interviewed her many times over the years. And I had a very close friend who worked for her for many years. So I know her pretty well. And I just really respected the way she thought about magazines and the way she edited that magazine. And I think there's a difference between like those big... Pub, those big um, conglomerates, they are essentially, especially the, the consumer packaged goods. Fashion is a little different. I'd say that it's still more helping to make the culture and create the culture. But like Unilever isn't the making revolutionary stuff that's changing the way we we look at products or use products. Like changing the way a man uses a product versus a woman or... Now, like, you know, a lot of these shaving things are very non-binary, all that stuff. It's They're never going to be the first people to do that. They're going to do that stuff five to ten years after. Whereas if you have this, like, little thing in your company that is actually starting these conversations and changing the way people work and move, not only could you be, you could move a little earlier if you wanted to, but it's just a way for you to keep in touch with how the world works. And I think what happens with a lot of these companies, I mean, I'd say CPG, Unilever and Johnson Johnson or whatever are probably too big to fail. But if you look at something like Cody, which their, their financial situation is too complicated to even get into, like their ups and downs. But I'd say with fragrance industry, 10 years ago, celebrity fragrance was the biggest thing in the world. And then it died. And then now designer fragrances, I'd say are more challenged than ever. Like they're not, these things still make a ton of money, but they're not at the center of culture. What fragrance, first of all, men are starting to wear fragrance a little bit more, but they don't wear it like they used to. But what fragrances does every like person who's interested in, fashion and design where they wear Barreto, they wear um, DS and Durga, they wear these like niche fragrances. And that's not the masses, like if, especially if you go abroad, they're still wearing celebrity and designer fragrances, but Cody never really had, or I don't want to target them because I don't know enough about the the details of their business, but any of these companies, they, they don't have like Estee Lauder bought one niche fragrance brand, so they kind of have their, their, um, their, I don't know what even, the toe in the water or whatever. I don't know what the, the 
thing would be to say, but I just think it's good to be, to know what's going on. Even if you're not applying it directly to what you do immediately, just to have a sense of what's going on and to own a bit of that cultural value is measured very differently than monetary. And Harry's may be much, much smaller than, I don't know what Glick, what the other ways are. Gillette. Gillette Glick, <laughs> I was going to say. Glick is a is the pen brand or something. Um, Gillette, but like, it's way more interesting. And, and for the people who make culture or who are creative, who kind of lead where society's going, they know what Harry's is. Yeah, and is so... It- it's yeah, Mel might have just been like people who work in media and some people who work in creative industries who thought it was cool, but they all knew about it and they knew that it was owned by Dollar Shave Club and it was like a weird thing that it was owned by them and they know that Dollar Shave Club is owned by Unilever. And so even I mean, especially given how much money it probably how much do those companies make a year, like sixty billion a year or something like that? I don't know, but a lot. Because LVMH does like $30 billion a year, so I'm sure they make way more than that. So it's probably it probably costs them, what, $2 million bucks a year to run, if that? Yeah, it's so very So probably, probably less than a million bucks a year. Who cares? Just let it go. Let it ride and see what happens. And you get something from it that's more interesting than what like some of the dumb magazines that company has done. Totally. You know? If if any, I mean, I don't know if they've done any, but yeah, like, they like definitely I said, like, have done like magazines with publications where they have like a full insert of all. Oh yeah. You know, beauty. Yeah, totally. Their one beauty line. Or right. Whatever. So from a impact, like even just from a learning perspective, like as I wrote in my piece, like Unilever could have learned a lot more about where masculinity is going from Mel magazine than any corporate insights team could ever produce with, surveys and index and that kind of stuff so you know my my original tweet when i found out about them getting rid of it was like unilever should be funding dozens of mail magazines not shutting them down like yeah yeah, there may be a line in the sand where it's like okay we don't want to talk about balls or something like that but why not i guess why not who cares people have balls yeah people have balls yeah um (laughs) and they should be excited to, to fund this sort of stuff because Guess who's not funding it? Condé Nast. Like, guess who's not taking any risks at all that are interesting? Hearst. Period. Um, Instead, it's like Uniqlo Lifewear Magazine is the most interesting new menswear. It's not even menswear. No. I love... I mean, I love... It's the most interesting new fashion magazine I've seen in a long time. Yeah. I guess other than Confect, which we'll talk about another time. But... Yeah, that's a a complicated subject. Another day. Um, how Anyways. how white can your magazine be? Is yeah. the speaking the title of Abercrombie of Quarterly? Yeah. Um, uh, cool. Well, so anyway, so that kind of gets to our point here, which is like this stuff can be really, really a great consumer experience, but it can also be helpful with with your business, whether it is trying to build products, trying to build relationships, trying to build credibility, but also like just understanding where things are going. Because if you're in any sort of consumer business, you need to know where things are going. Yeah. Um, which is a perfect time to plug newconsumer.com, my website. If you want to know where things are going and you want to read articles that are more coherent um, but have but feature far fewer cute babies than this podcast, do check out newconsumer.com. Please consider a membership um, and, you know, ch- re- read, what I, read what we were writing about the that. The thing that I love about the new consumer is you take – you have a you have a very clean and enjoyable writing style but you are an enthusiast but you don't you're you're very enthusiastic about what you write about in a way that feels journalistic if that makes wow. sense thank you like it doesn't feel like you are pandering to these people but you point out interesting things about what they're doing thank you unsolicited endorsement yeah. from my wife yeah. Who was also my editor. And... I enjoyed I enjoyed the fishwife piece recently. Thank you. I I, I also edited it. I made bit, you change yeah. one word. She helped. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, cool. Well, if you have great uh, branded not branded content, but like if you have great brand content that you'd like us to check out, because we're always looking for more. 
Yeah, because we have oh, we have so much time on our hands to read um, branded content magazines. Don't tell us; we'll find it. But uh, uh, we do we do enjoy this stuff, and we will um, point out any interesting stuff we see in the future. And we'll probably talk about this again. It's something that matters a lot, and also is interesting. So. Uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. I've done my best to clean up Whoa, some of the... Oh, we're not going to do our, our thing? Oh, yeah. We're going to do our thing. Yeah. Well, you want to talk first? Well, we were going to... So we're going to New York next week. This week. In two days. Right now, basically. We're on a plane. But what are you excited about? Um, I'm excited about being able to walk into like multiple interesting rooms within one block. Like the, you know, and we'll have to see like what the pandemic has wrought upon Soho and other like great retail places in in New York. But it's definitely been brutal here in L.A. Like a lot of the stores that we like the most have closed or, you know, have have pared back on their store count and. Um, or and just, just like, made it hard to go in. Yeah, like just, like, just we're like, only open from twelve to three on Wednesdays. <laughs> and you know like, who you are, counter space. Ouch. Um, and just like uh, not super pleasant experience for a long time. It's gotten better recently. I feel, I feel like uh, almost that that feeling that rush of energy, like barging into a store that I used to feel. Anyway, just like the density of of uh, a real city for um, for a few weeks, and um, obviously seeing friends and going to restaurants, and also um, working from an office for a few weeks, I have a couple friendly companies that are sharing space with me. Um, what about you? I'm really, really excited to see our friends. First of all, to eat at restaurants with our friends. It's going to be a little different. We're going to yeah. be eating. I mean, we used to eat at 6.30 or 7. Now we eat at 5. <laughs> we do. When we go out to eat because we need to be home by 7. But um, I'm excited to go. I'm, ex- I'm Fritz is too young to like. He he now is aware of everything. He's obviously not going to remember this. But I, he, he's aware enough to take stuff in. And the thing that I, I had lunch with a friend yesterday and the thing I said was there are really great museums here and great galleries and we have an incredible gallery, Marta, right down the street. Did we talk about the v- VDL house thing yesterday? No, I don't think so. Last week, we Marta, this gallery in Echo Park that we love, they did a big exhibit at the Neutra. It's the VDL house, right? Yeah. And it's it was amazing. We went on Saturday afternoon. It was incredible. We live right around the corner. We walked there. I mean, you don't. It was a great LA afternoon. It's really if you're going to be in LA, you got to go to this exhibit. It's just really great. Um, but generally, I mean, we're not super crazy art people. But I'd say every weekend that we were in New York, we would go to a gallery or museum just because it was something to do other than shop and walk around, and it was just so nice. And I'm really excited because I'm still on leave. And we're going to be walking, we're going to be spending so much time walking around when it's nice enough outside because we're going to be in this one bedroom apartment. I'm just going to take him to galleries and to museums constantly. Like, it, what else is there to do? It's, it'll, it'll just be so fun. I'm really excited about that. And I'm really excited. Um, yeah, I, same thing of, I mean, it's so different. We're staying in a one bedroom apartment there and here. We have an office, a nursery, our own bedroom. It's two floor, three, almost kind of three floor house like we're not going to want to be in our house very much and it's going to be a nice change of pace to just be forced out almost yeah and also like with fritz i take him out once a day somewhere usually we if we if we don't walk around the reservoir we go to um yesterday i had this lunch and my friend babysat him and then we went to barnsdale park for an hour just to hang out or whatever but it's going to be so much easier to just take him in and out i don't have to like put him in the car seat which he hates and all that stuff so it's going to be really fun and i'm i am interested to see um what stores are still there what stores have opened bof i didn't read it but bof just did a new article an article on how orchard street is just popping yeah i just saw that yeah I can't wait to read it. I love that idea because it's been such a 
I mean, down down in Dime Square, there's new stores that have opened since we left that I want to check out. There's this one called Leisure Center that sells all this goofy merch, and um, I want to see the Bodhi store and like do all of that stuff, and and also just walk around Central Park and go to new restaurants. It's gonna be really fun. I'm I'm gonna miss LA, but but I feel like we're gonna be very inspired by it. Totally. So future episodes of this show will be recorded in the Eastern time zone. Tell us, tell us if it sounds different. Tell us if you hear an energy in our voices. We should go because Fritz woke up and he is now hungry. So Great. Well, thanks all for listening. It's been a pleasure. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Needle and Mouse or individually find us at From Dome or La Premidi. You can always send us email at hello at the needle at the mouse and the, sorry hello at the needle and the mouse dot com. Uh, past episodes are available to stream there as well, and we'll catch you back soon. Bye. Bye.